0: All right, in this episode of the American Podcast, American History Podcast, sorry, we're gonna be looking at the rise of democracy from 1824 to 1840. All right. Middle and uppercross Europeans who visited the United States during these decades, they're especially sensitive to the egalitarian quality of American life. To begin with, they discovered that only one class of seats was available on stagecoaches and railcars. These were filled according to the rough-and-ready rule of first-come, first-served. In steamboat dining rooms or at country taverns, everyone ate at a common table, sharing food from the same serving plates. And indeed, the democratic manners of Americans seemed positively shocking to a lot of visiting Europeans. In Europe, social inferiors would speak only if spoken to, but Americans felt free to strike up a conversation or to shake hands with anyone, including total strangers. Americans were proud of such democratic behavior, which they viewed as a valued heritage of the revolution. The keel boaters, who carried the future King Louis Philippe of France on a trip down the Mississippi, made their Republican feelings plain when the keel boat ran aground. The ideology of the revolution made it clear that, in the American deck of cards, at least three spots counted to as much as jacks, kings, and queens. Kings were not allowed to forget that, and neither was Franklin Palmer. By equality, Americans did not mean equality of wealth or property. Nor did equality mean that all citizens had equal talent or capacity. In the end, what Americans upheld was the equality of opportunity, not equality of condition. In an economy that could go bust as well as boom, Americans agreed that one primary objective of government was to safeguard opportunity. Thus, the new politics of democracy walked hand in hand with the new opportunities of the market. The stately James Monroe, with his powdered hair and buckled shoes and breeches, was not part of the new politics. But in 1824, as he neared the end of a second term, a host of new leaders in the Republican Party looked to succeed him. The Republican Congressional Caucus finally settled on William H. Crawford of Georgia Georgia, as the party's presidential nominee. Condemning King Caucus as undemocratic, three other Republicans, all ardent nationalists, refused to withdraw from the race. These would be Secretary of State John Quincy Adams, John C. Calhoun, who was Monroe's Secretary of War, and Henry Clay, the Speaker of the House. None of these men bargained on the sudden emergence of another Republican candidate, Andrew Jackson, the hero of the Battle of New Orleans. Because of his limited experience, no one took Jackson's candidacy seriously at first, including Jackson himself. But soon the general supporters and rivals began receiving reports of his popularity. Savvy politicians flocked to his standard, but it was the people who first made Jackson a serious candidate. Calhoun eventually dropped out of the race, but none of the four remaining candidates received a majority of the popular vote. Still, Jackson led the field and also finished first in the Electoral College. Under the terms of the 12th Amendment, the House was to select a president from the top three candidates. Henry Clay, who finished fourth and was therefore eliminated, met privately with John Quincy Adams and then rallied the votes in the House of Representatives needed to put Adams over the top. Two days later, Adams announced that Clay would be his secretary of state, the usual stepping stone to the presidency. Jackson and his supporters promptly charged that there had been a corrupt bargain between Adams and Clay. Before Adams had even assumed office, the 1828 presidential race was already underway. More significant, the election of 1824 shattered the old party system. Henry Clay and John Quincy Adams began to organize a new party known as the National Republicans to distinguish it from Jefferson's old party. For the next decade, the political system continued to evolve. By the mid-1830s, the National Republicans gave way to the Whigs, a political party that also drew members from another party that flourished briefly, the Anti-Masons. The Democrats, as the other major party, came together under the leadership of Andrew Jackson. Once established, the second-party system dominated the nation's politics until the 1850s. Why was it that a new style, a new system of politics emerged in the 1820s? Part of the answer lay in the Panic of 1819. During the Depression that followed, many Americans became convinced that government policy had aggravated, if not actually produced, hard times. Consequently, they decided that the government had a responsibility to relieve distress and promote prosperity. The connection made between government policy and economic well-being stimulated rising popular interest in politics during the 1820s agitation mounted, especially at the state level, for government to enact debtor relief and provide other forms of assistance. Elections became the means through which the majority expressed its policy preferences by voting for candidates pledged to specific programs. The older idea that representatives should be independent, voting their best judgment, gave way to the notion that representatives were to carry out the will of the people as expressed in the results of elections. With more citizens championing the will of the people, Pressure mounted to open up the political process. Most states eliminated property qualifications for voting in favor of white manhood suffrage, under which all adult white males were allowed to vote. Similarly, property requirements for officeholders were reduced or dropped. Presidential elections became more democratic as well. By 1832, South Carolina was the only state where the legislature, rather than the voters, still chose presidential electors. Parties began to hold conventions as a more democratic method of nominating candidates and approving a platform. And because a presidential candidate had to carry a number of states in different sections of the country, the backing of a national party with effective state and local organizations became essential. The democratic winds of change affected European societies and eventually other areas of the world as well. In no other major country, however, were these reforms achieved as early and with as little resistance as in the United States. Suffrage provides a good example. In Britain, the response to growing demonstrations and a cautionary example of the French monarchy's overthrow in 1830, Parliament approved the Reform Bill of 1832, which enfranchised a number of property holders and gave Britain the broadest electorate in Europe. Yet, in fact, only about 15% of the adult males in Britain enjoyed the right of suffrage after the bill's passage. Even Britain's second Reform Act in 1867 enfranchised only about one-third of the adult males. Likewise, virtually all the Latin American republics established in the 1820s and 1830s imposed property requirements on voting or forbade certain occupational groups such as servants and peasants to vote. As the new reforms went into effect in the United States, voter turnout soared. Whereas in the 1824 presidential election, only 27% of eligible voters have bothered to go to the polls. In 1840, 78% cast ballots, probably the highest turnout in American history. All these developments uh, favored the emergence of a new type of politician, one whose life was devoted to party service and whose living often depended on public office. As the number of state internal improvement projects increased during the 1820s, so did the number of government jobs that could support party workers. No longer were politics primarily the province of the wealthy, who spent only part of their time on public affairs. Instead, political leaders were more likely to come from the middle ranks of society, especially outside the South. As Franklin Palmer demonstrated, a successful politician now had to mingle with the masses and voice their feelings, requirements that put the wealthy elite at a disadvantage. Politics became mass entertainment, with campaign hoopla frequently overshadowing issues. Parades, massive rallies, and barbecues were used to rouse voters, and treating to drinks became an almost universal campaign tactic. Although politicians talked often about principles, political parties were pragmatic organizations, intent on gaining and holding power. The Jacksonian era has been called the age of the common man, but such democratic tendencies had distinct limits. Women and slaves were not allowed to vote, nor could free African Americans, except in a few states or Indians. And these few states were Delaware, Maryland, New Hampshire, New York nor did the parties always deal effectively with or even address basic problems in society. Despite such limitations, however, popular political parties provided an essential mechanism for peacefully resolving differences among competing interest groups, regions, and social classes. When he assumed the presidency in 1825, John Quincy Adams might have worked to create a mass-based party. On the state level, the new democratic style of politics was already making headway, but Adams, a talented diplomat and a great Secretary of State, had hardly a political bone in his body. Cold and tactless, he could build no popular support for the ambitious and often far-sighted programs he proposed. His proposals that government promote not only manufacturing and agriculture, but also the arts, literature, and science, left his opponents aghast. Nor would Adams take any steps to gain re-election. Henry Clay finally undertook to organize the National Republicans, but with a reluctant candidate, he labored under serious handicaps. The new style of politics came into its own nationally only when Andrew Jackson swept to power at the head of a new party, the Democrats. During the campaign, he remained vague about his position on many issues, and the 1828 race descended into a series of personal attacks, splattering mud on all involved. But Jackson emerged victorious, with enormous majorities behind him in the South. The election of 1828 marks the beginning of politics as Americans have practiced it ever since, with two disciplined national parties actively competing for votes, emphasizing personalities over issues and resorting to mass electioneering techniques. Yet in terms of public policy, the meaning of the election was anything but clear. The people had voted for Jackson as a national hero without any real sense of what he would do with his newly won power. The first president from west of the Appalachians, Jackson was a man of action, and though he had a quick mind, he had little use for learning. His troops had nicknamed him Old Hickory out of respect for his toughness, but that strength sometimes became arrogance and he could be vindictive and a bully. Over the course of his turbulent career, he had fought several duels, one of which left a bullet embedded for the rest of his life within inches of his heart. For all his flaws, however, Jackson was a shrewd politician. He knew how to manipulate men and could be affable or abusive as the occasion demanded. He also displayed a keen sense of public opinion, reading the shifting national mood better than any of his contemporaries. As the nation's chief executive, Jackson defended the spoils system under which government jobs were awarded to political supporters, replacing officials regularly was a democratic reform, he insisted. The practice would guard against insensitive bureaucrats who presumed that they held their positions by right. The cabinet, he believed, existed more to carry out his will than to offer counsel. Throughout his term, he insisted on his way, and usually he got it. So Jackson took office at a time when the market economy was expanding throughout America and the nation's population was spreading geographically. The three major problems his administration faced were directly caused by the resulting growing pains. First, the demand for new lands put continuing pressure on Indians whose valuable cornfields and hunting grounds could produce marketable commodities such as cotton and wheat. Second... As the economies of the North, South, and West became more specialized, their rival interests forced a confrontation over the tariff. And finally, the booming economy focused attention on the role of credit and banking in society and on the new commercial attitudes that were a central part of the developing market economy. The president attacked all three issues on his characteristically combative style. So as a planter, Jackson benefited from the international demand for cotton that was drawing new lands into the market. He had gone off to the Tennessee frontier in 1788, a rowdy, ambitious young man who could afford to purchase only one slave. Caught up in the speculative mania of the frontier, he became a prominent land speculator, established himself as a planter, and by the time he became president, owned nearly a 100 slaves. His popularity derived not only from defeating the British, but also from opening extensive tracts of valuable Indian lands to white settlement. Even so, in 1820, an estimated... 125,000 Indians remained south, or remained east of the Mississippi River. In the southwest, the Choctaws, Creeks, Cherokees, Chickasaws, and Seminoles retained millions of acres of prime agricultural land in the heart of the Cotton Kingdom. Led by Georgia, southern states demanded that the federal government clear these titles. As white pressure for removal intensified, a shift in the attitude towards Indians and toward race in general occurred. In the past, whites most often had attributed cultural differences among whites, blacks, and Indians to the environment. Increasingly, after 1815, the dominant white culture stressed innate racial differences that could never be erased. A growing number of Americans began to argue that the Indian was a permanently inferior savage who blocked progress. The clamor among southern whites for removal placed the southwestern tribes in a difficult situation. Understandably, they rejected the idea of abandoning their lands, they diverged, however, over how to respond. Among the Cherokees, mixed bloods led by John Ross argued that a program of accommodation, of adopting white ways, would best stave off removal. After a bitter struggle, Ross prevailed, and in 1827 the Cherokees adopted a written constitution modeled after that of the United States. They also enacted the death penalty for any member who sold tribal lands to whites without consent of the, general, of the governing general council. Developing their own alphabet, they published a bilingual newspaper, the Cherokee Phoenix. The division between traditionalists and those are favoring accommodation reflected the fact that Indians too had been drawn into a web of market relationships. As more Cherokee families began to sell their surplus crops, they ceased to share property communally as in the past. Cherokee society became more stratified and unequal, just as white society had, and economic elites dominated the tropical government. Nor were the Cherokees untouched by the cotton boom. Some tribal leaders, particularly half-bloods who could deal easily with white culture, became wealthy planters who owned many black slaves and thousands of acres of cotton land. Largely a mixed ancestry, slaveholders were the driving force behind acculturation. As cotton cultivation expanding Expanded among the Cherokees, slavery became harsher and a primary means of determining status, just as in Southern white society. The General Council passed several laws forbidding intermarriage with blacks and excluding blacks and mulattoes from voting or holding office. Ironically, at the same time that white racial attitudes towards Indians were deteriorating, the Cherokee's view of African Americans drew closer to that of white society. As Western land fever increased and racial attitudes hardened, Jackson prodded Congress to provide funds for Indian removal. At the same time, the Georgia legislature declared Cherokee laws null and void and decreed that tribal members would be tried in state courts. In 1830, Congress finally passed a removal bill. But the Cherokees brought suit in federal court against Georgia's actions. In 1832, in the case of Worcester versus Georgia, The Supreme Court, in an opinion written by Chief Justice John Marshall, ruled that Georgia had no right to extend its laws over Cherokee territory. Pronouncing Marshall's decision stillborn, Jackson ignored the court's edict and went ahead with plans for removal. He very famously even said Marshall made the rule, or like the court made that rule, let them enforce it. And of course, Congress doesn't have the capacity, er, sorry, the Supreme Court doesn't have the capacity to enforce their own decisions like that. So Jackson just ignores the Supreme Court. And although Jackson assured Indians that they could be removed only voluntarily, he paid no heed when state governments harassed tribes into surrendering lands. Under the threat of coercion, the Choctaws, Chickasaws, and Creeks reluctantly agreed to move to tracts in present day Oklahoma. And the process, land-hungry schemers cheated tribal members out of as much as 90% of their land allotments. The Cherokees held out the longest, but to no avail. In order to deal with more pliant leaders of the tribe, Georgia authorities kidnapped Chief John Ross, who had led the resistance to relocation, and threw him in jail. Ross was finally released, but not allowed to negotiate the treaty, which stipulated that the Cherokees leave their lands no later than 1838. When that time came, most refused to leave. In response, President Martin Van Buren had the U.S. Army round up resistant members and force them at Bayonet Point to join the Westward March. Of the 15,000 who traveled this Trail of Tears that it was known as, approximately one quarter died along the way of exposure, disease, and exhaustion. Some Indians chose resistance. In the Old Northwest, a group of the and Fox, led by Black Hawk, recrossed the Mississippi into Illinois in 1832 and were crushed by federal troops and the militia. More successful was the resistance of a minority of Seminoles, led by Osceola. Despite Osceola's death, the Seminoles held out until 1842 in the Florida Everglades before being subdued and removed. In the end, only a small number of the Southern tribe members were able to escape removal. In his farewell address in 1837 Jackson defended his policy by piously asserting that the eastern tribes have been finally placed beyond the reach of injury or oppression and that the paternal care the general government will hereafter watch over them and protect them. Indians, however, knew the bitter truths of the matter. Without effective political power they were at the mercy of the pressures of the marketplace and the hardening racial attitudes of white Americans. Unlike with Indian removal, the rising discrimination against free African Americans did not depend directly on presidential action. Still, it was Jackson's Democratic Party, which was in the vanguard of promoting white equality, that was also the most strongly pro-slavery and the most hostile to black rights. The intensifying racism that accompanied the emergence of democracy in American life bore down with particular force on free African-Americans. Before the Civil War, the free Black population remained small, about 171,000 in 1840. Although those numbers amounted to less than 2% of the Norse population, most states enacted laws to keep African-Americans in an inferior position. Most Black Northerners lacked meaningful political rights. Black men could vote on equal terms with whites in only five New England states. New York imposed a property requirement only on Black voters, which disenfranchised the vast majority. Moreover, in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Connecticut, African American men lost the right to vote after having previously enjoyed that privilege. Blacks in the North were also denied basic civil rights that whites enjoyed. Five states forbade them to testify against whites, and either law or custom, kept African Americans from juries everywhere except in Massachusetts. In addition, several western states passed black exclusion laws prohibiting free African Americans from emigrating to the state. These laws were seldom enforced, but they were available to harass the free black population. Segregation or the physical separation of the races was widely practiced in the free states. African-Americans were excluded from public transportation or assigned to separate sections. Throughout the North, they could not go into most hotels and restaurants, and if permitted to enter theaters and lecture halls, they sat in the corners and balconies. In white churches, they sat in separate pews and took communion after white members. In virtually every community, black children were excluded from the public schools or forced to attend overcrowded and poorly funded separate schools. Discrimination pushed African-American males into the lowest-paying and most unskilled jobs. Servants, sailors, waiters, and common laborers. African-American women normally continued working after marriage, mostly as servants, cooks, laundresses, and seamstresses, since their wages were critical to the family's survival. Blacks were willing strike bakers because white workers fearing economic competition and loss of status were overtly hostile and excluded them from trade unions. A number of anti-black riots erupted in northern cities during these years. Driven into abject poverty, free blacks in the north suffered from inadequate diet, were more susceptible to disease, and in 1850 had a life expectancy 8 to 10 years shorter than that of whites. Free blacks had long suffered from such oppression and injustices. Between the Revolution and the War of 1812, they had responded by founding schools, churches, and mutual aid societies to sustain their communities. Some, like Paul Cuff, sought to escape white prejudice entirely by establishing settlements of free blacks in West Africa. The Quaker son of a West African father and a Wampanoag Indian mother, Paul Cuff became a sea captain, and in 1816, his merchant ship brought 38 free black New Englanders to settle in West Africa. Tufts' venture drew white sympathizers who formed the American Colonization Society, the ACS, and founded Liberia in West Africa in 1821-1822. to Several state legislatures in the North and the Upper South, as well as all the major Protestant churches, endorsed ACS plans to encourage free black immigration, but its members were an unlikely and unstable coalition. Some opposed slavery and hoped that colonization would encourage manumissions and gradual emancipation, while others believed that ridding the nation of free blacks would secure the future of slavery. Even as white support for colonization swelled during the 1820s, black enthusiasm for immigration diminished. Many African American leaders in the North were turning to more confrontational tactics. They advocated resistance to slavery and condemned racism and inequality. Among the most outspoken of this new, more militant generation, was David Walker, whose Appeal to the Colored Citizens of the World, published in 1829, denounced colonization and urged slaves to use violence to end suffrage. in bondage, sorry. <laughs> what prompted greater militancy among African Americans after the 1820s was also the growth of an increasingly virulent raci- racism among whites. Ironically, the success of efforts to promote education, religious piety, and temperance within the free black community threatened many lower class whites and intensified their resentment of African Americans. That animosity found vent in race riots, which erupted in Pittsburgh, Boston, Cincinnati, and New Haven. The depth of racism in the culture can be seen in the rise of the minstrel show, M-I-N-S-T-R-E-L, that type of minstrel, not the other. This is the most popular form of entertainment in Jacksonian America. Originating in the 1830s and 40s, these shows played to packed houses in cities and towns throughout the nation. They featured white actors performing in blackface whose skits dealt in the broadest of racial stereotypes ridiculing blacks as physically different and portraying them as ignorant buffoons. Minstrelsy's greatest success came in Northern cities. Its basic message was that African Americans could not cope with freedom and therefore did not belong in the North. Slaves were portrayed as happy and contented, whereas free blacks were caricatured either as strutting dandies or helpless ignoramuses. Drawing its patrons from workers, Irish immigrants, and the poorer elements in society, Minstrelsy assured these white champions of democracy that they remained superior. The unsettling economic, social, and political changes of the Jacksonian era heightened white Americans' fear of failure, which stimulated racism. The popular yet unrealistic expectation was that any white man might become rich. Yet in fact, 20% or more of white adult males of this era never accumulated any property. Their lack of success prompted them to relieve personal tensions through increased hostility toward their black neighbors. The power of racism in Jacksonian America stemmed at least in part from the fact that equality remained part of the nation's creed while it steadily receded as a social reality. Indian removal and anti-black discrimination provided one answer to the question of who would be given equality of opportunity in America's new democracy. Indians and African Americans would not. The issue of nullification raised a different, equally pressing question. As for the North, South, and West, increasingly specialized economically in response to the market revolution, how would a democratic system of government help various regions or interest groups to accommodate their differences? South Carolina had been particularly hard hit by the depression of 1819. When prosperity returned to the rest of the nation, many of the state's cotton planters still suffered. With lands exhausted from years of cultivation, They could not compete with the fabulous yields of frontier planters in Alabama and Mississippi. Under these difficult conditions, South Carolinians increasingly blamed federal tariffs for their miseries. When Congress raised the duty rates in 1824, they attacked the tariff as an unfair tax. After all, they sold their cotton on the open market for a price that went up and down without any tariff protection, but tariffs artificially raised the price of finished goods Southerners imported from abroad, including cotton textiles. In order to benefit New England merchants, other Southern states opposed the 1824 tariff as well, though none so vehemently. (coughs) The one Southern state in which Black inhabitants outnumber whites, South Carolina had also been growing more sensitive about the institution of slavery. In 1822, Denmark Vesey, He was a free black carpenter in Charleston, uh, allegedly secretly organized a plan to seize control of the city and raise the standard of black liberty, but there were two slaves of the governor at the time who confessed to knowing of these plans, but it's Undetermined if it happened under duress, like if they were forced into admitting this just to save themselves from further torture and brutality. But at the last moment, white officials stopped the conspiracy. They executed Vesey and his chief lieutenants, and Vesey never once admitted to doing this. He was never even given a chance to testify. It was basically a witch hunt where they wanted to stop something that they believed was going to happen, but there was never any actual proof of this. But, uh, yeah, white Southern Carolinians were convinced that other conspirators were lurking in the midst. And as an additional measure of security, they began to push for stronger constitutional protection of slavery. After all, the constitutional doctrine of broad construction and implied powers had already been used to justify higher protective tariffs. What was to prevent it from being used to end slavery? So when Congress, over the protests of the state's representatives, raised the duty rates still higher in 1828 with the so-called Tariff of Abominations, South Carolina's legislature published the South Carolina Exposition and Protest, which outlined for the first time the theory of nullification. Only later was it revealed that its author was Jackson's own vice president, John C. Calhoun. Calhoun was the most impressive intellect of his political generation. During the 1820s, the South Carolina leader made a slow but steady journey away from nationalism toward an extreme states' rights position. When he was elected Jackson's vice president, South Carolinians assumed that tariff reform would be quickly forthcoming, but Jackson and Calhoun soon quarreled and Calhoun lost all influence in the administration. In his theory of nullification, Calhoun argued that the union was a compact between sovereign states. Thus, the people of each state, acting in special conventions, had the right to nullify any federal law that exceeded the powers granted to Congress under the Constitution. In response, Congress could either repeal the law or propose a constitutional amendment, expressly giving it the power in question. If the amendment was ratified, the nullifying states could either accept the decision or exercise its ultimate right as a sovereign state and secede from the Union. In 1830, Senator Daniel Webster of Massachusetts responded that the Union was not a compact of Southern states. The people, and not the states, he argued, had created the Constitution. So Webster also insisted that the federal government did not merely act as the agent of the states, but had sovereign powers in those areas where it had been delegated responsibility. So when Congress passed another tariff in 1832 that failed to give the state of South Carolina any relief, their legislature called for the election of delegates to a popular convention, which overwhelmingly adopted an ordinance in November that declared the tariffs of 1828 and 20 or 32 null, void, and no law not binding upon this state, its officers, or citizens after February 1st, 1833. Jackson, who had spent much of his life defending the nation, was not about to tolerate any defiance of his authority or the federal government's. In his proclamation on nullification issued in December 1832, he insisted that the Union was perpetual and that under the Constitution, no state had the right to secede. To reinforce his announced determination to enforce the tariff laws, Congress passed the force bill, reaffirming the president's military powers. Yet, Jackson was also a skilled politician. At the same time that he threatened South Carolina, he urged Congress to reduce the tariff rates. With no other state willing to follow South Carolina's lead, Calhoun reluctantly agreed to a compromise tariff in 1833. South Carolina's convention repealed the nullifying ordinance, and the crisis passed. Calhoun's doctrine had proved too radical for the rest of the South. Even so, the controversy convinced many Southerners that they were becoming a permanent minority. As that feeling of isolation grew, it was not nullification but the threat of secession that ultimately became the South's primary weapon. Chartered by Congress in 1816 for a 20-year period, the Second Bank of the United States suffered from woeful mismanagement, at first, it helped fuel the speculative pressures in the economy, then it turned about facing sharply contracted credit by calling in loans when the Depression hit in 1819. Critics viewed the bank's policies not as a consequence, but as the cause of the financial downswing. To many Americans, the bank had already become a monster. The psychological effects of the Panic of 1819 were almost as momentous as the economic The shock of the Depression made the 1820s a time of soul-searching, during which many uneasy farmers and workers came to view the hard times as punishment for having lost sight of the old virtues of simplicity, frugality, and hard work. For these Americans, banks were a symbol of the commercialization of American society and the rapid passing of a simpler way of life. In 1823, Nicholas Biddle, a rich 37 year old philadelphia businessman became president of the national bank biddle was intelligent and thoroughly familiar with the banking system but he was also impossibly arrogant and politically dense he set out to use the bank to regulate the amount of credit available in the economy and thereby provide the nation with a sound currency the government regularly deposited its revenues in the national bank these revenues were paid largely in banknotes Paper money issued by state charter banks. If Biddle believed that a state bank had issued more notes than was safe, he presented them to that bank and demanded they be redeemed in specie, gold or silver. It's coined money. Because banks did not have enough specie reserves to back all the paper money they issued, the only way a state bank could continue to redeem its notes was to call in its loans and reduce the amount of its notes in circulation. This action had the effect of lessening the amount of credit in the economy. But if Biddle felt that a bank's credit policies were too reasonable, he simply returned the state bank notes to circulation without presenting them for redemption. Under Biddle's direction, the bank became a financial colossus with enormous power over state banks and over the economy. Yet Biddle used this power responsibly to provide the United States a sound paper currency, which the expanding economy needed. Although the bank had support in the business community, workers complained that they were often being paid in depreciated state banknotes that could be redeemed for only a portion of their face value, a practice that cheated them out of their full wages. They called for a hard money currency of only gold or silver. Hard money advocates viewed bankers and financiers as profiteers who manipulated the paper money system to enrich themselves at the expense of honest, hardworking farmers and laborers. Jackson no- own experiences had left him with a deep distrust of banks and paper money. In 1804, his Tennessee land speculations had brought him to the brink of bankruptcy, from which it took years of painful struggle to free himself. Reflecting on his personal situation, he became convinced that banks and paper money threatened to corrupt the Republic. As president, Jackson periodically called for reform of the banking system, but Biddle refused even to consider curbing the bank's powers. Already distracted by the nullification controversy, Jackson warned Biddle not to inject the bank issue into the 1832 campaign. When Biddle went ahead and applied for a renewal of the bank's charter in 1832, four years early, Jackson was furious. Despite the president's opposition, Congress passed a recharter bill in the summer of 1832. Immediately, Jackson vetoed it as unconstitutional, rejecting Marshall's earlier ruling in McCulloch v. Maryland. Condemning the bank as an agent of special privilege, the president pledged to protect the humble members of society, the farmer, mechanics, and laborers, against the advancement of the few at the expense of the many. When Congress failed to override Jackson's veto, the bank became a central issue of the 1832 campaign. Jackson's opponent was Henry Clay, a national Republican who eagerly accepted the financial support of Biddle and his bank. Clay went down to defeat, and once re-elected, Jackson was determined to move boldly. He believed that as a private corporation, the bank wielded a dangerous influence over government policy and the economy, and he was justly incensed over its interference in the election. To cripple the bank, the president simply ordered all the government's federal deposits withdrawn. Since such an act clearly violated federal law, Jackson was forced to transfer one secretary of the Treasury and fire another before he finally found an ally. Roger Taney, willing to take the job and carry out the edict. Taney gradually withdrew the government's funds while depositing new revenues in selected state banks. Biddle fought back by deliberately participating in a brief financial panic in 1833, but Jackson refused to budge. Eventually, Biddle had to relent, and Jackson's victory was complete. When the bank's charter expired in 1836, no national banking system replaced it. Jackson approached the end of his administration in triumph, and removal was well on its way to completion. The nullifiers have been confounded and the monster bank had been destroyed. In the process, Jackson immeasurably enlarged the power of the presidency. With the declaration he makes, the president is the direct representative of the American people. He was elected by the people and is responsive to them. Jackson redefined the character of the presidential office and its relationship to the people jackson also converted the veto into an effective presidential power during his two terms in office he vetoed 12 bills compared with only nine for all previous presidents combined moreover where his predecessors have vetoed bills only on strict constitutional grounds jackson felt free to block laws simply because he thought them bad policy the threat of such action became an effective way to shape pending legislation to his liking, a tactic that fundamentally strengthened the power of the President over Congress, and the development of the modern presidency began with Andrew Jackson. With the controls of the National Bank removed, state banks rapidly expanded their activities, including the printing of more money. As the currency expanded, so did the number of banks, from 329 in 1829 to 788 in 1837, a spiraling inflation, set in as prices rose 50% after 1830 and interest rates by half as much. In inflation, this is an increase in the overall price of goods and services over an extended period of time, or a similar decrease over time of the purchasing power of money. So as prices soared, so did speculative fever. By 1836, land sales, which had previously been only 2.6 million four years earlier, approached $25 million. Almost all these lands were bought entirely on credit with banknotes. In July 1836, Jackson issued the Specie Circular, which decreed that the government would accept only Specie for the purchase of public land. Land sales plummeted, but the speculative pressures in the economy were already too great. During Jackson's second term, his opponents had gradually come together in a new party, the Whigs. The Whigs embraced Clay's American system designed to spur national economic development through a protective tariff, a national bank, and federal aid for internal improvements. In 1836, the Democrats nominated Martin Van Buren, who triumphed over three Whig sectional candidates. Van Buren had less than two months in office to savor his triumph before the speculative mania collapsed, and with it the economy. After a brief recovery, the bottom fell out of the international carton market, cotton market in 1839, and the country entered a serious depression. It was not until 1843 that the economy revived slightly. Public opinion identified hard times with the policies of the Democratic Party. Since he continued to oppose a new national bank, Van Buren instead persuaded Congress in 1840 to create an independent treasury to hold the government's funds. Its offices were forbidden to accept paper currency, issue any banknotes, or make any loans. The government's money would be safe as Van Buren intended, but it would also remain unavailable to banks to make loans and stimulate the economy. Whigs, in contrast, hoped to encourage manufacturing and revive the economy by passing a protective tariff, continuing state internal improvement projects and protecting corporations and expanding the banking and credit system. As the depression deepened, thousands of workers were unemployed and countless businesses failed. Nationally, wages fell 30 to 50 percent. For the 1840 presidential campaign, the Whigs turned to William Henry Harrison, who had defeated the Shawnee Indians at Tippecanoe to oppose Van Buren. In the midst of the worst depression of the century, Whigs employed the Democratic electioneering techniques that Jackson supporters had perfected. They hailed Harrison as a man of the people while painting Van Buren as a dandy and an aristocrat who wore a corset, ate off gold plates with silver spoons, and used cologne. Whig rallies featured hard cider and log cabins to reinforce reinforce Harrison's image as a man of the people. Ironically, Harrison had been born in one of Virginia's most aristocratic families and was living in a 16-room mansion in Ohio. Yeah. But the Whig campaign, by casting the election as a contest between aristocracy and democracy, was perfectly attuned to the prevailing national spirit. In the campaign of 1840, Whigs also prominently involved women, urging them to become politically informed in order to morally instruct their husbands. Women attended Whig rallies, conducted meetings, made speeches, wrote campaign pamphlets, activities previously performed solely by men. Democrats were uneasy about this innovation, yet had no choice but to follow suit. Within a few years, the presence of women at party rallies was commonplace. The election produced a record turnout, with nearly four fifths of the eligible voters going to the polls. Although the popular vote was fairly close in the Electoral College, Harrison won an easy victory, truant 34 to 60. The Log Cabin Campaign marked the final transition from the deferential politics of the Federalist era to the egalitarian politics that had emerged in the wake of the Panic of 1819. So it's easy, given the hoopla of Democratic campaigning, to be distracted from the central fact that the new political system was directly shaped by the social and economic strains of an expanding nation. Whigs and Democrats held different attitudes toward the changes brought about by the market, banks, and commerce. The Democrats tended to view society as a continuing conflict between the people, farmers, planters, and workers, and a set of greedy aristocrats. They charged that this paper-money aristocracy of bankers, stock-jobbers, and investors manipulated the banking system for their own profit. For Democrats, the bank war became a battle to restore the old Jeffersonian republic with its values of simplicity, frugality, hard work, and independence. Jefferson understood the dangers private banks imposed to a democratic society. Yet, Democrats, in effect, wanted the rewards and goods that the market offered without sacrificing the features of a simple agrarian republic. They wanted the wealth that the market produced without the competitive society, the complex dealings, the dominance of urban centers, and the loss of independence that came with it. Whigs were more comfortable with the market. They envisioned no conflict between farmers and mechanics on the one hand, and business people and bankers on the other. The government's responsibility was to provide a well-regulated economy that guaranteed opportunity for citizens of ability. In such an economy, banks and corporations were not only useful, but necessary. Whigs and Democrats also disagreed over how active government should be. Despite Andrew Jackson's inclination to be a strong president, Democrats as a rule believed in limited government. Government's role in the economy was to promote competition by destroying monopolies and special privileges. In keeping with the philosophy, Democrats also rejected the idea that moral beliefs were the proper sphere of government action. Religion and politics, they believed, should be kept clearly separate, and they generally opposed humanitarian legislation. The Whigs, in contrast, view government power positively. They believed that it should be used to protect individual rights and public liberty, and that it had a special role where individual effort was ineffective. By regulating the economy and competition, the government could ensure equal opportunity. Indeed, for Whigs, the government promoting the general welfare went beyond the economy. Northern Whigs, in particular, also believed that government power should be used to foster the moral welfare of the country. They were much more likely to favor temperance or anti-slavery legislation and aid to education. Whigs portrayed themselves not only as the party of prosperity, but also as the party of respectability and proper behavior. In some ways, the social makeup of the two parties was similar. To be competitive, Whigs and Democrats both had to have significant support among farmers, the largest group in society, and workers. Neither party could carry an election by appealing exclusively to the rich or the poor. The Whigs, however, enjoyed distri- disproportionate strength among the business and commercial classes, especially following the bank war. Whigs appealed to f- planters who needed credit to finance their cotton and rice trade in the world market, to farmers who were eager to sell their surpluses, and to workers who wished to improve their social position. Democrats attracted farmers isolated from the market, or uncomfortable with it, workers alienated from the emerging industrial system, and rising entrepreneurs who wanted to break monopolies and open the economy to newcomers like themselves. The Whigs were strongest in the towns, cities, and rural areas that were fully integrated into the market economy, whereas Democrats dominated areas of semi-subsistence farming that were more isolated and languishing economically attitude toward the market, rather than economic position, was more important in determining party affiliation. Religion and ethnic identities also shaped partisanship. Whigs attracted the support of high-status native-born church groups, including Congregationalists and Unitarians in New England and Presbyterians and Episcopalians elsewhere. The party also attracted immigrant groups that most easily merged into the dominant Anglo-Protestant culture, such as the English, Welsh, and Scots. Democrats, however, recruited more Germans and Irish, whose more lenient observance of the Sabbath and, among Catholics, use of parochial schools generated native-born hostility. Democrats appealed to the lower-status Baptists and Methodists, particularly in states where they earlier had been subjected to legal disadvantages. Both parties also attracted free thinkers and the unchurched, but the Democrats had the advantage because they resisted demands for temperance and Sabbatarian laws, such as the prohibition of Sunday travel. In the few states where they could vote, African Americans were solidly Whig in reaction to the Democratic Party's strong racism and hostility to black rights. So just kind of to recap everything that's going on here, The rise of democracy was stimulated by the Panic of 1819, which caused Americans to look toward both politicians and the government to address their needs. The new political culture of democracy included the use of conventions to make nominations, the celebration of the wisdom of the people, the adoption of white manhood suffrage, and the acceptance of political parties as essential for the working of the constitutional system. The new politics had distinct limits, however. Women were not given the vote, and racism intensified. The Eastern Indian tribes were forced to move to new lands west of the Mississippi River. Free African Americans found themselves subject to increasingly harsh discrimination and exclusion. In politics, Andrew Jackson came to personify the new democratic culture. Through his forceful leadership, he significantly expanded the powers of the presidency. For example... He threatened to use force against South Carolina when it tried to nullify the federal tariff using John C. Calhoun's theory of nullification, that is, that a state convention can nullify a federal law. In response, nationalists were advancing the idea of the perpetual union. The Compromise of 1333, which gradually lowered the tariff, ended this crisis. Jackson vetoed a bill to recharter the Second Bank of the United States and destroyed it by removing its federal deposits. Under President Martin Van Buren, the nation entered a severe depression just very quickly after he assumed office. Capitalizing on hard times and employing the democratic techniques pioneered by the Democrats, the Whigs gained national power in 1840. By 1840, the two parties had developed different ideologies. So the Whigs were more comfortable with the mechanisms of the market and linked commerce with progress. The Democrats were uneasy about the market and favored limited government. So that's it. That's all I got for you in this podcast. I hope y'all enjoyed it. Keep in touch with what's going on with the American History Podcast. I'll see you guys next time. Bye.